0: Good morning. Good, morning. Good morning. Again, ohio uh, gozaimasu, um This morning, we're going to be looking to wrap up our study in the chapter 12 of Luke's gospel. The chapter thus far has had Luke recording for us various teachings of Jesus that revolved around the idea of Jesus warning his disciples. In verses 1 through 12, okay, we looked at Jesus' warning against hypocrisy. In verses 13 through 21, we looked at his warning against covetousness. Then it was a warning against worry and anxiety in verses 22 through 34. Last week, we looked at Jesus' warning against negligence in verses 34, excuse me, 35 through 48, as we noted the need for us to not neglect our readiness for Christ and the roles and the responsibilities left to us by Christ. In our text this morning, this warning to the disciples will continue, but Jesus will also turn his attention to the multitude around him and address them as well. Our text this morning will be Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 59. And in keeping with the theme thus far in chapter 12, I've taken the liberty of entitling our study, Beware of Assumptions. Okay, Beware of Assumptions assumptions. Jesus in these last verses of the chapter is going to be addressing certain assumptions that some were making concerning his coming. And as we get into the text this morning, we're going to see how Jesus was warning his disciples about making certain assumptions about his coming. And then he will turn his attention to the multitudes and address certain assumptions they were making that could prove very costly. So if you're there in chapter 12, I'd like to ask you to rise to your feet in honor of God and his word. I'm going to read our text in its entirety from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I want to encourage you, do your best to follow along in your own Bible. Luke, in continuing his account of Jesus' warnings, records the following in verse 49. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Verse 54. Then he also said to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather. And there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Yes, and why? Even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. Wow. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would lead us and guide us through your word. Lord, we want to know and understand how this word applied to the disciples, how it applied to the multitudes there in the first century, Lord. But we also want to know and understand how it applies to us today in 2022, the Father's Day. And so, Lord, I pray that you would lead us and guide us through your truth. I pray that you'd give us wisdom and understanding and, Lord, that you would allow us to hear what your spirit is desiring to say to us, your church. And so give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts that are open to all that you want. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Making assumptions can get us into a lot of trouble sometimes. And at other times, it can simply make us look foolish and perhaps leave us a bit embarrassed. Um... I recall it like it was yesterday. Farah, my wonderful wife of nearly 22 years now, uh, was about to churn the big 4-0. And I have permission to share this story, so it's okay. Um, And I had been working on something extra special for her for quite some time. Unbeknownst to her, uh, I had planned and put together an 80s themed surprise birthday party with the help of some of our closest friends. Some of you are like 80s themes. Yeah, that's because we're old. Okay, so 80s was cool for us. All right. Um, They were all in on it, okay, and I had even contacted friends from when we lived in Okinawa who were coming up, made arrangements for them to be picked up at the airport, brought them to the meeting hall where the party was taking place, planned all sorts of games and activities, had it catered, the whole enchilada, right? Well, the day of her birthday came, and I quickly hurried off to work, spent the entire day at the office finalizing all the plans and the preparations, getting everything just right. Now, I had told Farah that we were going to be going out with another couple from church to a nice uh, steak dinner on base, and I told her to dress nice and be ready to go when I got home from work. Well, I was a little bit late uh, from her perspective, okay? Uh, I was working on last-minute details, but I knew I was also operating on a different timeline than what I had told her, and so I was like, oh, I'm I'm fine. We don't have to worry about it, Uh, but she was not aware of that, Okay? And so, um, I get home from work and, and there she is, you know, looking absolutely stunning. Um, she was dressed very nicely. Her hair, her makeup were all done. And she was waiting for me as I entered the door, uh, which that was rare. Normally it's like, Hey, be ready. And it's like, okay, I'm still doing the hair and the kids, this, that, and whatever. But she was like, ready to go. Okay. But she was not too happy. Okay. Uh, to her, I was very late, and I didn't leave much time for me to get dressed myself and meet our friends for this supposed nice dinner that we were going on for her 40th birthday. And to top it all off, I really didn't get her anything as a way of a gift. And so she assumed that the only thing I did for her on her special day was show up empty-handed and late for a dinner date with friends. Okay? And that's when she told me, that's it and she told me, she said, go back out, and she ordered me saying, you go get me some flowers or something, and you are not coming back in this house until you have something for me. This is my 40th birthday, and you didn't, you know, do anything at all for me, right? And I had to explain to her, we don't have time. I don't have time to go get flowers. I don't have time to do that. Our friends are going to be waiting at the gate to sign a son We got to go, and And so, and this wasn't when we lived over here, we used to live in Sequito, so it wasn't like a two-minute drive to the base, it was like a 20-minute drive to the base, okay, and that was not a very fun drive, it was a very quiet drive, um, and it was not good for me, okay. Um, Yeah, and so, we met our friends, uh, got signed on to the base, pulled off the best surprise ever, she had absolutely no idea. Uh, Even when we opened the doors to the hall, and all her friends were lined up there in 80s costumes and shouted out, surprise, she still didn't get it. Uh, She was just stunned, Uh, and she thought, who are all these people, and why do they look so funny? Because we were all done, (laughs) they were all done up. Um, It ended up being a wonderful time with great friends uh, celebrating Farah. I do have a picture to remind everybody. Uh, Farah, uh, they took her uh, into, the re- into the girls' restroom, got her out of her really nice clothes, put her into this like Madonna-like thing. They teased her hair up really big and had gloves, and I had the the big rocker hairdo. It was it was a lot of fun. And and Farah forgave me, and she was sorry for doubting me and assuming that I hadn't done anything for her big day. She even apologized for ordering me to go get her some flowers um all ended well okay so you know we can make assumptions sometimes that may just embarrass us or may make us feel a little awkward but sometimes assumptions can do far worse in our text this morning we're going to hear jesus address a few assumptions of the disciples and of the multitude assumptions that could lead to something far worse than a little embarrassment These were assumptions that could have an eternal impact. We're going to break up our text this morning into those two major sections. The first major section will be verses 49 through 53 as Jesus addresses his disciples and cautions them about making assumptions regarding his coming and the purpose of his coming. And the second major section will be verses 54 through 59 where Jesus addresses the multitudes and cautions them about making assumptions regarding his coming and discerning the times. So let's dive back into our text, this first section where Jesus addresses his disciples beginning with verses 49 and 50. Jesus is speaking, Luke records for us, it says, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. We'll pause right there. Jesus starts off with a description of his coming and states that he came to send fire on the earth and how he wished it were already kindled. The meaning behind what Jesus is speaking of here is something that has been debated by Bible scholars and men of faith for quite some time. The difficulty in properly understanding what Jesus is speaking of here revolves properly identifying the use of fire as imagery. Okay? What does fire represent and what it is What is it referring to here in verse 49 when Jesus described his coming? You see, within the scriptures, fire is used figuratively in different contexts. Sometimes fire is used to refer to testing and trials. Sometimes it's used to refer to judgment and hell. At other times it speaks of refinement and purity, okay? It's used in a number of other ways as well. And so how is Jesus using it here? Again, scholars are divided. I'm going to present two of the main interpretations to you and let you guys can decide for yourselves. One way to look at this is to see this fire as judgment, That Jesus came to send judgment on the earth. And this would seem to line up with what Jesus taught in John's gospel, where he said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Used in this context, the word judgment refers to Jesus coming in order that the righteous may be approved and the wicked condemned that those who have been blinded by the poor example of the religious leaders may see, and so that the religious leaders who are presumed to see and know spiritual matters may be made blind. Jesus came to give sight to the spiritually blind and to blind the spiritually corrupt. But this idea of Jesus coming for judgment is one that is difficult to understand and grasp completely, partly because of what Jesus himself says. In John chapter 12, verse 47, Jesus testifies, saying this, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. We all probably know and are familiar with John chapter 3, verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But what about John three seventeen? okay, the very next verse? In John three seventeen, Jesus continued saying, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so things are a little murky here. Did Jesus come to bring judgment? Yes, in the sense that he came to separate between the believer and the unbeliever. But at the same time, no, okay, in that his purpose in coming was not to judge and condemn people. And the fact that Jesus speaks about how he wishes this fire was already kindled makes it seem like this is something he greatly desires. Something that he's looking forward to with great anticipation. The word wish, it actually carries the idea of Jesus, that Jesus would derive great pleasure and joy in this taking place. And understanding this fact, would we think it proper to say that Jesus greatly desires to see judgment? That he would take great pleasure in seeing judgment come upon the earth? To see people judged? To see people condemned? I don't think so. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 states that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's heart for us, his great desire, is not to see people perish. It is to see people uh, get saved to see people come to repentance, to come to faith in Jesus Christ, which leads to the other main interpretation. Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Okay, that really is the theme verse of the entire gospel account of Luke. Jesus came to save. But where do we see in the Bible a connection between salvation and fire. May I suggest to you the day of Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit was associated with fire. John the Baptist said in comparison to his ministry and that of Jesus is that he baptized with water, but one mightier than he was coming, whose sandal he was not worthy to loose. And John said of him, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and Fire on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples and it was described as an appearance of divided tongues as of fire that sat upon each of them. It could be that what Jesus is referring to here when he mentions fire is not judgment, but more so a reference to the coming work and ministry of the Holy Spirit that this was something he greatly desired to see take place, something that would bring him great pleasure and joy. The kindled fire Jesus longs for could be a reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and his work and ministry in and through the church body. And this would actually seem to fit better with what Jesus speaks next in verse 50 when he states, but I have a baptism to be baptized with. The word but is a word of contrast. Jesus longs for this fire to be sent upon the earth, but before it can come, Jesus himself must go through his own baptism. Jesus said in speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit that he would send the helper to the disciples from the Father. Jesus said in John chapter 16 verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. You see, the sending of the Holy Spirit upon the church is connected to the work of salvation, for it is the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment as described in John chapter 16 verse 8. It is the Holy Spirit that moves upon us, showing us our need for a Savior, revealing to us our sinful state and our need to receive Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And so, which is it? Jesus came to send fire, but what was that fire representative of? Did Jesus come to send judgment or to send the Holy Spirit that we may be saved? Did He come as judge? Did He come as Savior? It could simply be a matter of whether or not we are talking about Jesus' first coming or his second coming. In Jesus' first coming, he came as the suffering servant. He came as the sacrificial lamb who would willingly lay down his life to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law and grant to us a way to be reconciled to the Father by grace through faith, primarily through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' second coming, he will not come as the suffering servant, but as the conquering king. Not as the sacrificial lamb, but as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come to bring judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. And perhaps that is why this particular passage has caused so many Bible scholars and interpreters problems. Because we're looking at this from the perspective of a single coming rather than two separate comings. Jesus' first coming was as savior of the world. His second coming will be as judge of the world. Jesus is both savior and judge. It just depends on which coming you're talking about. Now, was Jesus referring to his first coming at this time or to his second coming? It could be hard to say, but I do lean more towards the idea that Jesus is referring to his first coming at this time, and therefore lean more toward the idea that Jesus is referring to the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Could I be wrong? Yes. Okay. Uh, could this be referring to judgment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, could it be referring to something entirely different? I think that's even possible as well. Jesus could be referring to the spread of the gospel going out across the land like a fire, okay? the spreading of his kingdom. It is difficult to say with 100% certainty what this fire represents. But regardless, we know and understand that Jesus is both Savior and Judge. Continuing on, I think it's safe to say that when Jesus mentions the baptism that he has to be baptized with, that it is a clear reference to his future suffering upon the cross of Calvary. You see, prior to Jesus heading to the cross of Calvary, and right before entering into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus was approached by the mother of the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. Some of you may be familiar with that portion of scripture. James and John's mother came to Jesus and pleaded with him, asking that Jesus would grant to her two sons that they may sit on the right and on the left with Jesus in his kingdom. Now, if you're familiar with that portion of scripture, you'll think this is kind of funny because Jesus does not respond to the mother. He actually responds to James and John because he knows that pretty much James and John put mom up to this and said, hey, mom, go ask Jesus for this special favor. And so Jesus responds actually to James and John. And this is what he says to them. He says, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink and to be baptized baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? If Jesus was referring to the, the pain and suffering that he would endure leading up to and upon the cross, very foolishly the two sons, they're like, Yes, we are, you know, we're able to do that. And he says, Yeah, kind of chuckles and says, You will, uh, but to sit on my right and my left is not for me to decide. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Three times he went to the Lord in prayer, asking if this cup could pass from him, referring to the pain and the suffering of the cross. This was something that caused Jesus great anguish of heart. He was in such agony that Luke, the beloved physician, the author of our gospel account, he described Jesus as sweating great drops of blood, a medical condition that can occur when someone is under severe distress and agony. Jesus says here in Luke chapter 12 that this baptism of his was something that caused him great distress. It was something that held him. It constrained him. It was as if it consumed him. The cross was something that loomed very large before Jesus Christ. This was going to be the most painful and agonizing death possible. Beyond the physical pain of the crucifixion was the emotional pain that would come from the feeling of being forsaken by the Father. The wrath of God the Father being poured out upon God the Son. Jesus described how distressed he was till this baptism was accomplished. That word accomplished, it speaks of something being fully accomplished, something being perfected, of being brought to its ultimate and destined goal. It is actually the same exact word that Jesus cried out upon the cross of Calvary right before he gave up his spirit. There upon the cross of Calvary, he cried out, it is finished, okay? the same Greek root word that's used here in Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Jesus went through the pain and the suffering, the agony and distress of the crucifixion for you and for me, for those that would repent of their sins and put their faith in him and his work upon the cross for us. He is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus could lean upon a joy, a joy that was so wonderful, so remarkable, so amazing that it was strong enough for him to look to while enduring the horror of death upon the cross and to not give up. What was that joy that allowed him to persevere, to hold on, to not give up, to completely yield his life to the will of the Father? Well, it was heaven. But not just heaven alone. Not just him returning to his father, to his eternal home, but him returning to his father and paving a way for you and me to join with him and his father in heaven for all of eternity. Us in heaven with him was the joy that was set before him. That is what allowed him to continue and to yield himself completely to the cross of Calvary. Jesus came to bring salvation to a lost and dying world. And the way that he would bring about that work of salvation would be through dying for the world. Let's continue on as Jesus speaks more about his coming and the assumptions that some of these disciples may have made. In verse 51, he says, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I actually thought, do I share this teaching on Father's Day? Father divided against son, son against... uh, This is where God has us. We just make our way and let him set the agenda. Jesus asks his disciples a question. He says, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? Now, we can understand perhaps why some of the disciples thought this about Jesus' coming. It was the angels of heaven that sang out in chorus at the birth of Jesus, joyfully shouting, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, prophesied of his son's work and how he would give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Okay? Isaiah the prophet, he prophesied of the coming Messiah, declaring of him, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You see, there were so many prophecies that spoke of the peace the Messiah would bring. And so because his disciples viewed Jesus as the Messiah, it would be very natural for them to suppose Jesus came to bring peace. And in a sense, he did. But not as they were envisioning it. Jesus didn't come to bring peace upon the earth, but peace of heart, peace of mind, and knowing one's sins could be forgiven. He came to bring peace with God. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Later he said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, Okay, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus came to give his peace to those who would follow after him. He gave a peace that was different from the world's idea of peace. His peace was a peace of mind that would sustain us through the tribulations, the persecutions of this world. Paul would write later on, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And so the peace that Jesus offered was not some sort of worldwide peace that would be for everyone. He was not ushering in some sort of utopia there on earth. No, in coming and in bringing his kind of peace, what he ended up doing was bringing division. Jesus said, not peace, not at all, but rather division. And the reason that this is true is because the coming of Jesus Christ gave every single person a choice to make. Will you receive him or will you reject him? And now we covered this earlier in Luke's gospel, the fact that you cannot remain neutral when it comes to Jesus Christ. You are either for him or you are against him. There is absolutely no middle ground. It was just last chapter, chapter 11, we heard Jesus say, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. You see, there are only two types of people on this earth. There's the believer and the unbeliever. There's the saved and the unsaved. There's those going to heaven or those going to hell. And you are in either one of those two camps. You are either a believer who has been saved from their sins and you have secured an eternal home in heaven, or you are an unbeliever who isn't saved and will face the penalty of your sins in eternal damnation in hell. You see, there are only two types of people in this world. You see, the gospel is a dividing line. It is a line in the sand, okay? You either believe or you do not. And there are a lot of people out there that don't like that. Listen, the gospel is offensive. Okay? The gospel says that you are inherently fallen and wicked, and that you are born into sin and facing a life sentence upon birth. It says that there is only one way to escape this life sentencing, and that is through faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. Some think that's narrow-minded. Some think that's not fair. They don't like the gospel message. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. I, for one, think it glorious and extremely generous upon God's part. God made it simple. There are not many ways to heaven that we all must figure out on our own. There is only one way. God made it simple by making there only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus knew and he understood the magnitude of the gospel message and how it would bring division. Houses would be divided, three against two, two against three. He speaks of different family relations here and how they will be divided against each other. And I do think it is significant that Jesus uses family relationships here. You see, the bond between a father and a son, a bond between a mother and her daughter are some of the strongest bonds that we know upon this earth. You know, there are some who say there's nothing more important than family or that blood is thicker than water, symbolizing a belief that family is more important than any other relationships and needs. Some say that nothing should come between you and your family. But Jesus knew better. He knew that a relationship with Him was of the utmost importance. That blood may be thicker than water, but only His blood can wipe away the stain of sin. Only His blood can wash us and cleanse us and sanctify us. Jesus suffered upon the cross that He may sanctify the people by His own blood, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. By the blood of Christ, we who were once far off have been brought near in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Listen, there is nothing... There is nothing more important than being part of God's family. And for some, that decision to become part of God's family comes at a very significant price. For some, it means having to say goodbye to family and loved ones that have rejected Christ and His message of the gospel. This was true then, and it is even still true today. Jews in the first century were ostracized from their families for turning to faith in Jesus Christ, and Jews today still face the same sort of persecution. Muslims today are separated from family and in some extreme cases are even killed for placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Many of our very own Japanese brothers and sisters have come to Christ at the cost of their own family. I know Japanese believers who have been banished and shunned Okay, for turning to faith in Christ. They are no longer welcome amongst their family because they have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus knew and he understood the magnitude of his coming and the importance of responding to his gospel message. He didn't want any of his disciples making any assumptions regarding his coming and the impact it would have upon this world. And we need to know and understand this same truth that there is nothing more important than making a choice to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. A relationship with Jesus trumps all other relationships. We should never let any other relationship keep us from entering into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and becoming part of God's family. Let's turn to our second major section of our text where jesus turns his attention to the multitude surrounding him Their assumptions about his coming and their lack of discernment read with me verses 54 through 56 Then he also said to the multitudes Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west immediately you say a shower is coming And so it is And when you see the south wind blow you say there will be hot weather and there is hypocrites you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? Jesus is going to use two, two different illustrations to address the multitudes and their assumptions about Jesus' coming, the first of which is laid out for us here in verses 54 through 56, and it has to do with weather patterns. Jesus explained how the people of the day were wise and discerning about certain weather patterns. They could discern the face of the sky and the earth and reliably predict the weather. When there was a cloud rising out of the west, coming up from the Mediterranean Sea, they knew they were in for some rainy weather. When the winds from the south would blow coming in across the hot, arid land of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, they knew that they were in for some hot weather. Jesus calls out to them as hypocrites, using this harsh word to startle the crowd and his listeners to the urgency of their situation. They acted as if they were quite a discerning group, being able to predict the weather, yet they proved themselves ignorant and foolish by not understanding the climate of their times. The people could successfully discern the signs of the weather, but were willfully ignoring the signs of their times. Jesus questioned how it was possible for them not to discern this time. Referring to a very specific time. The time they lived in was a very significant time. A time where God was fulfilling words of prophecy that had been spoken hundreds, even thousands of years prior to this. This was their time. Their Messiah had finally come. They should have known. They should have discerned it. They had the scriptures and they should have known. After all, It was the prophet Micah who prophesied of the one to be ruler of Israel, the one whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, how he would be born in Bethlehem, right? And hadn't a so-called king been born in Bethlehem some 30 years prior to this? Isn't that why in paranoia and great rage King Herod ordered the annihilation of all male children, two years old and under in Bethlehem and all of its districts? Did they not Remember this, did they just forget about that? Didn't they begin to wonder what was going on when Zacharias the priest came out from serving the Lord? He was mute until the day of his son's birth, John the Baptist. It was on the day of his son's birth that when he wrote on the tablet, his name is John, giving to his son the name the angel who visited him visited him while serving in the temple had instructed him to give his son. And immediately Zacharias' tongue was loosed, and he began to praise God. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesied of his son's ministry in preparing the way for the Lord, speaking of how blessed the Lord God of Israel is, how he had visited and redeemed his people, had raised up a horn of salvation for the Jews in the house of his servant David. Listen, there had not been a word of prophecy recorded for some 400 years up until that time. And all the people marvelled, and fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea, according to Luke chapter one verse sixty five and that child did grow up and proclaim the word of the Lord and the coming of the messiah and it was John the Baptist who saw Jesus coming toward him, and he declared, "Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Had they not been paying attention regarding Daniel's prophecy? Of the coming Messiah, where Daniel clearly foretold the exact day their Messiah would come. Daniel stated, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. A total of sixty-nine weeks were mentioned. But the word weeks refers not to seven days, but periods of seven years. Therefore, the total of sixty-nine weeks was really sixty-nine seven year periods, adding up to a total of 483 years. And history tells us that it was on March 14th, 445 B.C., that Artaxerxes gave the order to restore and rebuild the streets and walls of the city of Jerusalem, and that exactly 173,880 days later, 483 years later, is the day that Jesus triumphantly entered into the city of Jerusalem upon the back of a donkey as prophesied by Zechariah. Were they not counting down the days? Did they not understand that the time of their Messiah was drawing near Luke records how upon that very day, the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as Jesus drew near to the city, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that made for your peace. They should have known. They should have been ready, but they were not. They assumed the coming of their Messiah would somehow look different. They had their own idea of what it would be like upon that day, and they completely missed their Messiah who was right before them. Listen, guys, we need to make sure that we aren't making any assumptions about Jesus' second coming in our own preparedness. Are we ready? Are we cognitive of the times that we live in and how they point to the potential return of Christ? Things are happening even today. Prophecies seem to be unfolding before our eyes. The world is ripe for the second coming of Jesus Christ and we need to be ready. As we read through the book of Revelation that speaks of the second coming of Jesus Christ, we see that the stage is set. Israel as a nation, once again, they're working on plans for rebuilding the temple that the abomination of desolation may take place. The world seems to be lining up for a scenario with a one world government, one currency, one world dominating confederation of nations. All of these things are spoken of in the book of Revelation and we see them becoming closer and closer to reality with each passing day. Listen, you guys. We need to discern the time we live in and we need to make sure that we are ready for his coming. Let's take a look look at this next illustration Jesus speaks of regarding legal matters and the sense of urgency that was required by the people. Read verses 57 through 59 and we'll wrap up our study together. Verse 57 says, yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge, the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. Jesus used two illustrations to warn the people of their assumptions regarding his coming. The first had to do with his weather patterns, their inability, to discern, their inability to discern the times. This second illustration deals with legal matters that were of great significance and they're not discerning the urgency of the matter. Jesus accused the multitudes of not judging what was right, of not properly assessing the situation and understanding the urgency that was required of them. Jesus spoke of a scenario where one should try everything possible within their power to make amends with someone, to work out some sort of agreement with someone prior to going to court especially considering if you are the one in error and you know you'll be found guilty by the judge and thrown into prison. Jesus explained how important it was for someone to make every effort to settle the matter prior to being found before the judge and sentenced to prison. Because once you were before the judge and his sentence was given, it would be too late. Your fate would be sealed. You'd be thrown into prison. The illustration is meant to show that in light of Jesus' coming and the gift of salvation that he offers, it would behoove them all greatly to settle their sin problem with Jesus prior to the day that they are set before the Lord. Jesus, in essence, is offering an opportunity to settle with God outside of court before their day of judgment. By placing their trust and hope in Jesus as their Messiah, the multitude would be able to escape the judgment of their sins and be brought into a right standing with the Lord. And through this illustration, Jesus is trying to show to them the severity of the judgment against them and the great price they will have to pay for their sins. They will be cast into prison and shall not depart until they have paid every last one of their debts. But therein lies the great magnitude of it all. Every one of them owed a debt they could never repay. No amount of time in prison will warrant an early release. They will be found for all eternity, never, they will be bound, excuse me, for all of eternity, never being able to fully pay for the sins and failures of their life. Listen, the same is true for us, you guys we must understand the urgency of settling our sin debt prior to the day that we stand before the Lord. We need to take Jesus up, up on His offer. And we need to ask Him to wash us and to cleanse us from our sins. We need to get right with God now while we still have time. You see, there are many in today's world who are making assumptions about Jesus and His second coming, just like there were many who made assumptions about His first coming. People are assuming they have plenty of time, that there is no sense of urgency, that they can just, you know, get right with God later on in life. You know, when things slow down and their life begins to grow old, they think they can just wait until then and get right with God. I have... Friends, I have family members that have told me, I believe in Jesus, but I just love doing what I'm doing right now too much. I'm not ready to get right with the Lord. And they're like, I'm just going to live in sin. And I'll get right with the Lord later on. But they are making the same mistake as the multitudes that were before Jesus. People who live that way are not discerning their time of visitation. They're not discerning the sense of urgency that's needed to get right with the Lord. Paul pleads with us that we not receive the grace of God in vain, stating, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Listen, do not put off till tomorrow what you know God is calling you to today. You don't even know if you will have a tomorrow. The scriptures attest that our lives are but a vapor that appear for a little time and then vanish away. We have no idea what tomorrow will bring. And that is why it is so paramount that we settle with God now, that we accept the offer of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that we stop making assumptions about his coming and understand the need to get right with God now. We don't want to wait until it is too late and we find ourselves having to answer for our own sins. We need to repent of our sins. We need to confess our faith in Jesus' completed work of the cross. And then we need to live our lives in such a way that we are ready for His coming. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this warning, Lord, that Jesus gave to his disciples that he gave to the multitudes about just making assumptions about uh, your coming. And Lord, uh, we do thank you, Lord, that you are coming back again. We look out and we see the world, the way that it's going, and we can't help but imagine, Lord, that your coming is 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 nigh, Lord. As the scriptures are, are unfolding before our eyes, as we begin to see these things, the scriptures encourages us to look up for our redemption draws nigh. Lord, I pray that we would be looking up and that we would be ready for Your coming. Lord, I pray that we would not assume upon time, that we would not assume upon opportunities in the future, Lord, but that we would get right with you today if we need to. Lord, I don't know if there's anybody here that does not know you, that has not surrendered their life to you as Lord and Savior, but Lord, I pray that if they have yet to do that, that today would be the day of salvation. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the time to come to you, to settle an account with you, to have their sins forgiven. Lord, I pray that they would do so today by faith. Lord, I know all many that are in here, and I know they love you. Lord, I know that they have called upon you as Lord and Savior, and they're living their life to bring honor and glory to you. And so, Lord, I just pray that they would continue to live by the strength that your Spirit provides, that they would continue to be aware and discerning of the times, and Lord, that we might be fruitful and productive in the time that you've given to us. Lord, may we be lights. May we be salt to this world around us. May we be used by your Holy Spirit to bring as many with us to heaven to be with you. And so, Lord, lead us and guide us, empower us by your Spirit. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.